Remember when that was like the thing that people would do was like synchronized swimming was like a genre of yeah. film. You walk up the stairs and you you sort of like yeah. fall out in a line. Yeah, women would go to Hollywood mm-hmm. from small town America and be like, I'm going to be the ninth gal to fall in the pool. Yeah. Journos, a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. You know what's nice about the summer season is that it's like people like to get out there. They like to un- unwind, man. Oh, yeah. People like to have a good time. Yep. There's a lot of getting together. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of uh, testing social bonds, Indeed. right? Like yeah. you meet somebody, you like them. Yeah. You meet somebody else, you like them at the same time. Okay, I see where you're One going. One thing uh, leads to another, uh, okay, right? Yeah. You're having a few drinks. Uh-huh. You go back to your tiny cabin. Wait, wait. Cabin? Where are we? Uh, Probably on a boat. Probably uh, on a cruise ooh, yeah. ship. And given, you know, what we know about these kind of things, it's probably a carnival cruise. Yep. Probably. Yeah. Second thing leads to a third thing. Word gets out. 60-person brawl breaks out at 2 a.m. on the dance floor of a carnival cruise. A fight breaking out on the carnival cruise ship based out of Jacksonville. The incident happening late last night near the end of the five-day trip. I saw the video. I read this story. That is so nuts. It was a carnival cruise coming back from the Caribbean, and it was just off the coast of New York City. And as you kind of alluded to, there was a bit of a menage a trois on board that not everybody was on board with, namely the partners of some of those involved in this three-way expression of love. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. so it went from a it went from a threesome to an orgy of violence. An orgy of violence, and it's so insane because there's a threesome, and then sixty people beat the crap out of each other for how long? An hour. The fight lasted an hour. Can yeah. you believe that? So much so that HuffPo said at one point the battle moved from the fifth floor to the ship's first floor, and. Eventually, the cruise line security crew had to call the U.S. Coast Guard to escort the ship to shore. This is a very fraught and very complicated issue, the issue of human interaction Mm -hmm. in what you could consider like the liminal space of the vacation or the we're not home. Social bonds are somewhat paused. Yeah. People are going to be like looking to connect more and more as this season progresses, especially because it's wedding season here in the United States. And there has been something of what appears to be a trend creeping up on society. And that is the out in the open and somewhat regimented distribution of psychedelic drugs at weddings. Psilocybin, to be exact, people, it's it's kind of the user-friendly training wheels version of drugs that everybody seems more or less comfortable with. Now, there are some interesting stats that we have to back that up that we'll get into later. But to help us work through this idea and to plumb the depths of what connection means in this post-COVID era is a friend of the show and accomplished journalist Jenny Avens, who recently had a piece in The Cut all about the aforementioned use of psychedelics at weddings. So without further ado, we'd like to uh, bring her on. Jenny, how's it going? Great. Happy wedding season. <laughs> happy wedding season. But not happy cruising, apparently. No. Uh-uh. Uh, Jenny, you hadn't heard about this carnival orgy before just a few <laughs> I months, not. months ago. 
What do you think about that in your experience as a, as a journalist, as a person who's been to events? What do you think about that? It sounds terrifying. I mean, because you can't leave. Oh, yeah. Unlike right. most weddings, if you need to sneak out, you usually can. Yeah. Jenny. Yes. Hi. 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 Um, tell us about yourself. You're a journalist. I've seen your byline all over town. Where are you at now? I'm a freelancer in West Los Angeles, still writing culture and lifestyle stuff, which I've been doing for a good while. Lately, I've been writing about travel. I've been writing about drugs. I did write a lot about cannabis when I was on staff at Quartz for several years, um, but very much because it sort of found its way into the lifestyle realm. Um, I used to work in New York, so there I was covering a lot of fashion stuff. And when I moved to LA, I kind of traded it for weed, I guess. Sure. Um, That's very poetic. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And increasingly, I guess, psilocybin and mushrooms and other drugs. So tell us about the story, what you learned, what it was about, who you talked to. I wrote a story for The Cut, uh, which does a lot of wedding coverage this time of year, you know, what to wear, how to budget, stuff like that. And this was a story about the trend of microdosing mushrooms being almost like a signature cocktail, sort of being an element at a wedding that's increasingly common and sometimes even like facilitated by the couple. That it's not just sort of like, oh, somebody's groomsman, you know, has some in his pocket sort of thing. I mean, which there was also that. But this was much more sort of designed um, and couples really being very intentional and thinking about how this could affect their celebration. It was something that I, I guess had been sort of percolating for a little while. I heard from a friend just before the pandemic about a wedding that she had gone to which was an extravaganza, like multiple wardrobe changes, fireworks. And she just sort of mentioned, oh yeah. And they had these like mushroom chocolates that they were passing around, which I was like, well, that's interesting because I sort of feel like there are some weddings where that's probably been happening for a long time. But this to me did not strike me necessarily as that kind of wedding. It wasn't just hippies camping or it was not the sort of stereotypical expected shroomy wedding. And it sort of made me wonder if it was happening more and indeed it is. And so I talked to a few couples who've done that. I talked to a wedding planner. She's based in the Bay Area, but she does a lot of California weddings and described her clientele as new money burners founders, you know, people who like really like to splash out and party. I talked to a few different people who sell mushrooms and sort of like different levels of the market, I guess you would say. And that was really interesting. And I talked to some wedding guests about their experiences. I noticed that part of the game with these chocolates or edibles or whatever was that you wanted to get the dose just right. These are not people who are trying to like trip balls right before the couple walks down the aisle. It's it's about managing this dose so that you're having kind of a, a nootropic or somewhat perceptual level of uh, engagement with the drug, but not full-on psychedelic ego dissolution. Were people concerned about like, how do we manage this dose so that we know that across this whole group of people who are at our wedding, 
all different ages, sizes, all of these different things. Like, you know, you're kind of rolling the dice a little bit. How did they control for that? Yeah, I think mainly it wasn't the same dose for everybody. So the deal was that they wanted to offer something, whether it was like a gummy or a capsule or chocolates that were a low enough dose that it could be like, if this is your first rodeo and you don't really want to feel much, you could take one if you've been doing this for years and are not afraid and sort of know what you're doing, that you could take five. One couple, <laughs> the groom sort of ordained a few of his friends to be what he called the mushroom squires. Um, <laughs> they, they were in charge of handing out, I think that he had made capsules. There were a lot of people who talked about sort of writing a note that was with the mushrooms at all times that very clearly stated dosage instructions so that you didn't have somebody having like a super intense psychedelic experience while they're like dancing the horror or something. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And I think that part of the reason that we're seeing this more now is that there are more products like this that are super user friendly. It's not necessarily like a baggie of dried out mushrooms that you're like, how many caps and how many stems, you know, that it's, you know, that there are packaged chocolates with dosages written on the packaging, you know, and it's this many triangles is this many grams. And it says sort of clearly what to expect from one, from two, from three. It looks a lot like cannabis edibles for those of us who can like go to a dispensary and buy them legally. There are a lot of mushroom products right now that sort of look that user friendly. And, and that's partially because as you report in the piece that a lot of people are who are ex already in the cannabis industry are sort of like silently or not so silently pivoting to the distribution of these user-friendly psilocybin products because they sort of have the supply chain, they sort of have the manufacturing yeah. uh, logistics down. To follow up on what you're saying, you report that um, you spoke to somebody who uses the name Jeff in the piece. And he says that in LA, he's selling 20,000 of these chocolate bars a month. And, and each of those contains these eight and a half gram doses. But that is compared to f only 5,000 a month back in 2019, which is still a lot, but still that's a, a, a like a fourfold increase. So there seems to be some actual, at least, you know, re reported anecdotal, somewhat hard data behind the fact that this is in, indeed on the rise. Yeah. I mean, I think it definitely is. And that was sort of 5,000 out of the gate when he was starting. Yeah. Yeah. It's a super interesting sort of gray market. You have, quote, Jeff, who didn't want to be identified. But then on the exact opposite side of the spectrum, you talk to another person who was all about being identified. That's pretty ballsy to put, like, uh, you know, your, yourself out there with a website and all of that. And so tell me, tell us about the guy who was, like, all about putting himself out there. Yeah, Derek Chase. So he has a cannabis brand already called Flora and Bast that's widely distributed. They have beauty products, I think, in like Neiman Marcus or Saks. You know, it's it's a luxury sort of product. And he's doing mushrooms under a label called Silhouette, you know, with a PS, like psilocybin. Ah, I see what he did there. Yeah, and they're marketed very much for therapeutic applications. 
we had this long conversation and I, I asked him really clearly, you know, are you okay with your name being in this story, with your brand name being in this story? And, and he just sort of said, yeah, that we know what we're doing is illegal, but we also think that we're sort of on the downslope of this of drug policy regulating or cracking down yeah. on this sort of thing. And that the DEA isn't really prioritizing enforcing it. And both he and Jeff gave me the sense that they are sort of just preparing for the start line in Oregon in January. So, you know, in places like Denver and Oakland, it's already been decriminalized. And in Oregon, what we're going to see is, I don't, do you call them clinics? You know, places that'll facilitate a sort of mushroom trip experience. Mm -hmm. That's not facilitated by a university where you now see those in like experimental settings. This is... Right. This is like a private... Yeah, exactly. Which which makes your story all the more fascinating, right? Because it is being presented as, as you said, a signature cocktail, right? And everybody's doing it. So it's super normalized. So what else did you learn about how this affected the celebration, how this affected people's moods and how they were enjoying themselves at these events? Yeah, well, I'll start by saying that sort of how out in the open it was, was a spectrum that there was the wedding where, you know, the bride sent out a Google form beforehand with a survey of your drug of choice, you know, that rather than sort of picking, would you have like steak or chicken or fish at dinner? It was like, do you want weed, mushrooms or Palo Santo, which is, you know, not a drug. That was sort of like the sober option. <laughs> that was the vegetarian plate. <laughs> yeah, that's the vegetarian. Everybody else is getting all high and that poor sober person is just like waving like a smoky <laughs> stick in front of their face. But you appreciate that when you're tripping out. You're like, oh, that's a lovely Yeah, sound. it smells yeah. so good. Yeah. yeah. So there was that wedding and they... They sort of said, you know, off the bat that they didn't do the thing where they invited people that they felt like they should or that they had to invite. You know, that if there was a second cousin that they weren't feeling, they weren't there. So they sort of said everybody who was there was completely on the same page. And even if they weren't doing it, they had a sense of humor about it. And everybody was, you know, yeah. at the same party. Yeah. Um, but none of the couples use their real names in the story. So I guess that does tell you something about how out in the open or not in the open, people are comfortable being with this. But for the most part, when people said that it was slightly on the DL or that everybody didn't know, they almost always referenced an older family member that they, you know, didn't want to either scare or disappoint. That that they just sort of knew that there were some guests who might be actually really worried or upset if they knew yeah. that this was going on, you know, who also might actually have greatly benefited from the vibe yeah. that resulted. Mm -hmm. um, All of a sudden, Granny's at like an acid test and she's like, what the hell? Is it? Yeah. Um, That's the irony. The one who needs it the most is the one. Well, or Granny was like, look, these are the children I remember. <laughs> like, <laughs> They're having a great time and not sort of so worried about themselves and just everybody's dancing, totally. which was sort of what everybody described. It was such a joy to report the story because everybody that I talked to had so much fun. Yeah. Um, and I think that it felt maybe a little bit, I don't know, naughty isn't the word, but they were a little bit like it felt a little bit fun and scary to share it, but that they had such a positive experience that they really 
wanted to. And as far as sort of what they described happening, it sounded very wholesome. It sounded sort of like just wholesome, good, clean fun of like people dancing in circles at the end of the night, you know, one of the weddings or in the pool. Like there was a lot of, you know, people ending up in the pool. There were no fights. There were no like 60 person brawls, certainly. But (laughs) there was a camping wedding in California, you know, like cabins glamping and the groom described after everything had ended and you know the dj was done and the bar was closed and whatever that everybody had sort of ended up in this lodge and that people were dancing in a circle sort of like nerdily like middle school style and you know that like people were jumping in the middle and just laughing you know that that was something else that people talked about a lot was just people laughing and i feel like especially for those, you know, that took place over the last summer or in the last year, that that kind of togetherness just is magical after you haven't had it for a really long time. And I mean, I don't know. I I love a good wedding and I feel like there is something that can happen at like a great wedding where, you know, the person who does the ceremony is like really sort of like locked in and they create like a, a real vibe and people aren't just like on their phones. Um, you know that it can be a really sort of like special, emotional, sometimes like cathartic and connecting experience. And that, you know, to be on like a little bit of mushrooms seemed for many people to just heighten that feeling. I love that you wrote this piece. I love that it was in such a huge publication because I think that it's really well reported, but I think it it elevates this conversation in this really wonderful way. And I hope that it does um, drive the conversation towards decriminalization and legalization forward. It's such a great example of how nobody needs to be afraid of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think destigmatization too. And like, I will say that for all the like good, clean fun that I just described, you know, that Derek Chase from Silhouette did say that, like, there are some reasons to be wary of this at a wedding for, like, those who aren't experienced. But the main reason that he used was that if you're around a lot of people who are potentially drinking a lot, that their behavior can be kind of unpredictable and sometimes scary. And so that might not be the best place to be having sort of like your your first experience of this kind. But again, we're talking about very low dosages that shouldn't be sort of super mind altering or like frightening for anyone. It reminded me of something Michael Pollan said, and Michael Pollan's now like the guru of psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And he said, we're rediscovering these medicine traditions that other cultures have been using for thousands of years, like you said, but we can't just import them directly into our culture. We can't just take a Native American peyote ceremony and make it ours because we're a different culture. You can't just take things that way. So you have to sort of figure out what's the dialogue that we're going to have with these chemicals that works for us in this, you know, American, Western consumerist context. And when he said that, I really was thinking, you know, it was so fascinating to kind of think about what that meant and what forms that would take. He didn't 
have any particular ideas. I mean, he was talking kind of more specifically about using it for therapeutics and in medical settings. But I think your story is kind of one of the first ones that applies it. It says, well, we know that wedding culture looks like this. We know the parameters of it. You can add it in this way and it fulfills all of these social functions and may in fact improve the experience and draw people together and create this kind of closeness that I think we all aspire to when we're at a wedding or a family event or whatever. Um, but now there's potentially a tool and a set of rules that are evolving that will help us to sort of create that cultural space. I hadn't really thought of it quite in that way. But yeah, that's interesting. And I like that. It's funny, like nobody that I spoke to for this story talked about it as like a sacrament or even necessarily like a spiritual tool. A lot of people honestly were kind of comparing it to other party drugs, but in doing so, started to sort of paint this picture of something that did look much more like a tool for sort of connection and celebration, which I suppose, you know, you can make the case that other party drugs or champagne or whatever it is are also that. But it felt to me like people were talking about an experience of togetherness that was elevated, which makes sense sort of given what we know from people like Michael Pollan about the way psilocybin affects our brains, right? That it dissolves sort of your sense of yourself as separate from other people and from nature. You know, for those of us who haven't like gone to a party in a couple of years now and might have a tendency to like be in our own heads a little bit, I think that could be super helpful. <laughs> Just sort of an easy way to feel connected with like the crew around you. We should note that the use of psychedelics, for example, MDMA, is more and more mainstream these days, right? And I find it cool and very remarkable that against the backdrop of American society today, which is very much a mixed bag between authoritarianism and like liberalism, that the use of these medicines and substances seem to be on the rise again. I think that says a lot about where we are at as a culture. Whenever you look at the facts, the reasoning behind how illegal these things are just totally falls apart. Because there's a million comparisons to things which are much more dangerous, which are much more harmful to society in a very quantifiable way. So I wonder again, like, what this all means and what it portends for, like, the future. Well, don't you think part of that has to do with that mushrooms are pretty easy to grow on your own? So maybe it's not so easy for corporations to make money on them. So there's not sort of a great incentive for it to be legalized mushrooms are a lot easier to grow. So there will certainly be this market, but it may be more of an artisanal market or, you know, it'll be a version of like home brewing or, you know, baking your own sourdough bread. Like if it's something that's kind of that easy, but it becomes, you know, common knowledge, how to do it, how to, you know, prepare it in these various ways. Yeah, it might bypass the kind of big control, but Ginny, to your point, that might be a reason why it is shut down before it gets out of the gate. Yeah. I mean, I think that also it's a reason that the sort of Jeffs and Derricks of the story add a lot of value with gummies and chocolates and capsules and things that are really easy to use and precisely dosed. And I mean, it's pretty easy to grow your own weed in California, but people still buy a lot of it in dispensaries. One of the subtexts of the story is this tension between 
kind of a speakeasy approach, right? Like people are doing this thing, it's an open secret, but you know, you kind of explore these different levels of secrecy. And this story comes at a point in which there's more and more of these stories about psychedelics being used for medical research, the many uh, potential benefits, pharmacological benefits, psychological benefits, spiritual benefits. And I think there is, at least to me, this sense that we're building a head of steam, we're building a, a kind of acceptance that is, you know, attendant with cannabis. But then... You look at what's going on in the public conversation now with Roe versus Wade and EPA, and there's this real strong sense of, oh, yeah, all this progress that we think is inevitable can be reversed. So I wonder, as you were working on this story, Jenny, reading stuff that had come before and thinking about where this might go, was was any of that kind of coloring your thinking about the trajectory of this? Yeah, I mean, I think that when we talk about all these therapeutic applications, which have very real and serious benefits for a lot of people. To me, what was kind of missing in some of that coverage is just the idea of fun. That like, also, these can just be fun and that that's good for people too. You know, that it's good for people to get together and feel like they're one with nature and laughing at something so hard until they cannot even remember what made them start laughing and now they're just laughing because it's so funny to keep laughing. That like, there is value in that and that we're so sort of like productivity obsessed and, you know, pharmaceutical obsessed and sort of like, what could I replace with this? And I really enjoyed talking to people about mushrooms in a way that was just like, well, was it fun? Like, what'd you guys do? Was What was the dance party like, you know? Did, did anybody surprise you who took them, you know, or who didn't take them? And I think even just for myself, with the news being the sort of hellscape that you've just described, I personally kind of needed to report a story that was just fun. And this story it sort of helped me in a way in kind of a dark news time and just a time, you know, when I haven't gotten to sort of like gather this way with my friends and my family hardly at all in the last couple of years. So I really, really enjoyed hearing about people's experiences of doing that in a way, you know, that was not disappointing, that was not scary, but that was just fun. Hmm. I love yeah. that. Yeah, it's it's almost like we, this whole idea about microdosing and how it became popularized in Silicon Valley and like exactly. the value of psychedelics is somehow intertwined suddenly with capitalism and like the workforce and like getting more out of your employees and if you know you need to bend the rules a little bit so somebody could hit those numbers because they're like thinking in this new way it that kind of misses the point right but it's funny i've never thought about this before until you put it that way it's like Seems like the conversation around legalizing this stuff only really got elevated when it became this like work workplace enhancement tool. And that's it. And it's, you know, that could be part of it, but it shouldn't be even the main part of it. It's, yeah. Finding the things that make you enjoy life more, I think, are, are kind of what it's all about. And I think that that is part of the conversation when it, you know, in the sort of like well-being realm, you know, that if it is helping people to disconnect from work or their screens or like be in nature and feel connected to it in a way that they haven't before, which is something that a lot of people report. 
there's a lot of value in that. And there's a lot of value in feeling connected to other people, like not to sound super new agey, but I think, you know, there's a lot of research that shows and you don't really need research to show that we, many of us feel increasingly isolated despite being like, you know, allegedly super connected via our phones and stuff, that this is a way I think that some people feel more connected to something bigger than themselves. Yeah. And to other people. And in this case, you know, their friends and family on a dance floor in a pool. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this nerdy editor's hat question. There are a lot of stories around psychedelics that are out now. And so this one is going to find an audience because people are interested in this stuff. Uh, the timing was good because it's wedding season. So you sort of, the Venn diagram of the story makes sense. Did you feel like as you were researching this, that the phenomenon itself of dosing at weddings was new or that it was just something that, that you had picked up on, but that had been kind of cranking along uh, below the radar for a while? I think both in a way. I think it had been percolating for a little while. A couple of the weddings, the wedding that I told you about that sort of planted this seed for me, so to speak, was before the pandemic. So that was a couple of years ago and that was already sort of like a big fancy wedding. But I think that with sort of the advent of chocolates like Jeff's and these products that are super user-friendly and that more people have access to, that it is starting to snowball a little bit, just the way, you know, that weed has as it's become easier to just like pop a gummy or share a pre-roll. It's sort of likelier that somebody's going to like have something in the pocket of their suit or in their little handbag. I'd like to take this opportunity to say that we are fielding offers for advertising now. And if any of these companies want to <laughs> uh, email us, uh, info at journos.net. I mean, th there's no question that there's less stigma around its consumption today than it was five years ago, 10 years ago. Um, so I think that that's going to naturally map over to some standard event such as a wedding. Totally. Yeah. And actually, I talked to another guy for this story who called himself the doctor for his ability to supply drugs, substances. Um, he like declined to call himself a drug dealer, but that sounded very much like what his job description was. <laughs> and he said that he had gone supplied like between 10 and 20 weddings in the last year with mushrooms. He was the guy in the story who had flown, I can't remember, a couple hundred of those chocolates to a wedding in Miami. And that was one of, you know, he estimated 10 to 20 such celebrations that he's done over the last year. And he brings other stuff too. But to your point, it's going to be it's going to be at weddings too. I think that what was sweet to me in some way about this story was the way that people talked about it, enhancing the wedding experience. It, it's not something I've ever heard anybody sort of use to describe, I don't know, somebody like bringing Coke to their wedding or something, which, you know, happens or other drugs. But this really, it, it did feel, it did feel like it was an enhancement in a different way. One thing that goes along with the idea of how we're developing new behaviors and rules is also this idea that we have thought for so long of psychedelics as, 
you take them and you go on this trip and you see colors and you're out of the world for a long time. And that's scary to a lot of people because like, well, first of all, do I want to spend eight hours like staring at my carpet? Not necessarily. Sometimes, sometimes. But it also means that it's not entirely the most functional drug when you think about it in that context. But your story illustrates like, oh, there's these other ways of using plant medicine where it's it's not that you don't feel anything. It's not sub-perceptual and it's not total ego dissolution. It's this kind of space that we haven't really talked about as much historically, which is like, just imagine it enhancing things in a way that's not bad, like alcohol can be bad, but has yeah. all of these other benefits. And that sort of feels like the first time we're really talking about it in a big cultural sense. Yeah. I mean, one of the guys who I interviewed said something like, you know, you don't have to drink the whole bottle of wine. You can just have a glass. And I feel like that's sort of the zone that we're talking about is like the one drink, giddy, this is going to be a fun night zone. Yeah. And I feel like especially post, you know, a couple years of social isolation, that's a really nice zone to be in. Yeah, not a microdose, not a macro dose, like a like a medio dose, right? Like just the sort of the most user friendly of psychedelic experiences. And I wonder if what it, what this story also points to is how this ancient ritual of the wedding is in fact evolving in modern society, right? You know, even if a couple decades ago, weddings were kind of traditionally for the parents. It was like parents were throwing weddings. It was in a lot of cases a way to display their wealth. It was sort of like, look at my children, look at me, how nice is this? And it, the, the focus of a wedding was, was on the bride and groom, but it was a lot about the parents. And I think over the past even maybe 20 years, that shift has occurred where the the focus of the wedding is truly on the bride and groom and they are have these heavy hands in planning it it is their vision more and more and as people are changing their comfort levels with things like psychedelic drugs or even having an officiant who's their best friend who's not like a religious person like a priest or a rabbi that's on the rise as well so this kind of feels like you're tapping into this zeitgeist of how this ancient ritual is evolving into these modern times. I think one thing that you can say about, you know, mushrooms at weddings is that if the point of the wedding is really to celebrate love and connect with friends and family and have a good time, that sounds like a pretty good place for everything we know about mushrooms. It doesn't feel like it's a made for Instagram thing, which is kind of the other side of weddings today it's more about being present than being a hundred percent yeah i think that's the distinction is that it is a tool for being present and that that i think is just what so many people are missing well i'll tell you where they really could have used some of these gummies carnival cruise <laughs> that <nights>. carnival cruise yeah <laughs> carnival cruise, <laughs> carnival cruise. you don't see a lot of weddings ending with having to call the coast guard no, no. well it's been such a pleasure to have you join us today, Jenny. Thank you. It has been such a joy to be here with you guys. Jenny, um, where can people find you? What should they be thinking about when they're looking for you? What kind of stuff do you want the world to know? People can find me at Jenny Avins, J-E-N-N-I-A-V-I-N-S dot substack dot com. 
I write a newsletter there called Have a Good Day about living well in weird times, which is what we're all trying to do right now, I think. I can't really say what people should think about while they're looking for me. I don't know, something happy, a good happy good. thought. Um, we hope to uh, have you on again sometime soon. This has been Journos, and my name is Steven Jackson. I'm Brandon R. Reynolds. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Journos is produced by Heather Eagle Ears Wilson. <laughs>